Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, and continuing to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. This is God's Word. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, We come this morning to know You, to know You as You are, to know You as You have revealed Yourself to be in the Holy Word of God. You teach us today that You are a refining fire, You are like fuller's soap, that You have come to purify the silver and to burn away the dross of the gold. And Lord, we are indeed Yours. We long and desire for You to do that with us. But we acknowledge that when we say that, we often don't know what we mean. And we will often complain when You do that work in us, even as the people of Israel were complaining in this passage. Would you today soften our hearts to receive from you exactly what it is that you would have each of us to hear, and that this word would not simply be information and simply propositions of truth, though it is that, but that it would be transformatively powerful, that we would today enter, as it were, the refiner's fire and would find ourselves shaped unto holiness as we come to know You, the God of the Word, 
the Word that speaks of You and Your grace towards us. Come and meet us here in this moment and lift us up that we might behold the wonderful things that You have for us from this Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look with this, this passage uh, with you in three ways this morning as we consider these uh, verses. I want us to see the problem of delayed justice. It really sits really on the surface of the text this morning. The problem of delayed justice is why the people of Israel are complaining so much in this text. But I want you to see also that there's a second problem that's not immediately recognizable, and it's the problem of delivered justice. A problem of delivered justice. There's a problem when God delays justice. There's a problem when God delivers justice. And the problem is not with God, by the way. Nor with this justice, the problem is with us. There's a problem of delayed justice. There's a problem of delivered justice here in this passage. But there is an answer. There is an answer, and it comes with the justice that delivers. It comes with the justice that delivers in this text. And we want to see all three of these things today as we look at Malachi 2, 17, 3 through 6. I want to start with this problem of delayed justice. And I couldn't help but feel this poignantly, as I know many of you have. I've spoken with a number of you this week about current events, especially the atrocities coming out of Israel our hearts have been broken by the destruction, the violence, uh, the, the senseless murdering of women and children, the hostages that we've seen. Our hearts broke not too long ago for Ukraine and continues to, doesn't it? So we see those matters spread across the TV screen, across the, across the screens of our, of our phones. It churns our stomachs, doesn't it? And it leads us to our knees. It leads us to say the very words that well, David himself said in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long? At other times, it's not that phrase that shows up in our prayers. It's more of an undercurrent underneath our prayers. It's more of a spirit that permeates our prayers that we would we want the Lord to come in justice. We want Him to, to right the things that are wrong in the world. We want to see Him protect the innocent. We want to see Him punish the guilty. It's a desire that is of the nature of God in whose image that we're made to long for those things. To have in some sense a righteous anger. We talked about that not too long ago when we looked at Ephesians and our study of Ephesians where the Lord tells us to be angry and do not sin. A righteous anger rises up with, within us and we plead for the Lord based upon His promises to come and do that which is right. And not allow for this evil to go unpunished. Not allow for these perpetrators and these injustices to go without being righted. We feel this particularly personally, don't we, when something happens to us 
along those lines. A person that should have been looking out for your well-being when you were a child didn't and exploited you in some way. And maybe you have even shared your story and you have sought justice for that story and people haven't really heard it. Maybe they thought that it was a story that you blew out of proportion or exaggerated in, in some way. And it's clear to you that the people who could really help you bring to justice this exploitation, this injustice against, against you really don't care to do so. And, and you find yourself stuck, you find yourself helpless, and you say to yourself, how long, O oh Lord? Feel it very personally. Maybe a crime has been committed against you. Maybe you were swindled. And, and you've been um, uh, taken for a, a false investment. And now your basic needs are having difficulty being met because of the financial ruin that came on the other end of this false in investment. And you, you've tried means by which to bring justice and to, to recover this this lost funds from this thievery and through loopholes in the system, through shell companies, through, through IRS minutia, you, you find that the system is working to protect the perpetrator. And he or she gets away scot-free. We could duplicate these scenarios. Over and over and, and over. And when these scenarios happen over and over and over again, and when they linger, especially the scenarios personally in our life, what can often happen is the, the faithful plea to the Lord for how long, O oh Lord, bring justice can morph into doubt and despair. And very often we begin to ask questions of whether the Lord is really who He is that He says He is. He reveals one thing in the word, but then I'm looking at these things in the world and they don't, well, they don't match up. They don't, they don't make sense. I want you to know that if you've had questions along those lines, then you're among friends here in this, this room. All of us at some point in time are going to not understand uh, the things that happen in the world, the things that happen in our own lives. We're going to, we're going to look at these things and we're going to say to ourselves, I can't make heads or tails of what's happening. And we're going to say to the Lord, we know who you are, but this is bewildering. Now, when, when you see that, this seeming contradiction or this, this mystifying in, injustice that's not adjudicated by, by the Lord, when you find yourself in that spot, I want you to know that you're actually in the midst of a battle of faith. You, you probably don't think of it that way, but you're really in the midst of a battle of faith because that faith-filled plea, oh Lord, how long I know that you will bring justice, turns into like, will you bring justice? <laughs> Becomes a loss of faith. It begins to move into doubt. We begin to question as time goes along. And, and the three things you need to see in that battle of faith are, or, or is there's a, there's a rub between what biblical revelation says between what the earthly reality is and how you interpret it. That's where the battle is. There's a rub in those three things. Every time that you're having some struggle of that kind, there's a rub between biblical revelation, between the earthly reality, and how it is that you interpret it. Let me illustrate it from this, this particular text. The people of Israel know what the Bible says. They're not ignorant of what the Scripture says. Says They know that God claims propositionally 
in the Word that He is good. They know that God claims that He is just. They're fully aware that God's claim in His Word is that He is righteous. It's not that they don't know those things. Propositional reality or truth is present for the people of Israel. They actually, even more than that, have significant historical proof from which to back up that biblical revelation. They can go back and look at the Exodus, for instance. And they can see God's faithfulness to adjudicate matters of injustice. Uh, They can look back at the, the rise of King David and the glory of the covenant promises of God, where he has promised one thing and he's brought about exactly what it is that he said he's promised. Most recently, they can see that he has brought them back from exile, just as he said that they would. And he has reestablished them in the land. He has allowed them to build the wall and the temple. He's been very, very faithful. They have lots that they can look around to and say, God has been true to his promises. But then they look out at the world and you know what they see? They see that they're still under foreign oppression and authorities. They see that by every estimation, the glory of King David's era is is just a faint shadow now based on what they see that's before their eyes. They have few resources. They're not very wealthy. The land flowing with milk and honey is not flowing. And as they look around, they see these enemies who hate God and want nothing to do with Yahweh flourishing. Life is going great for them. It's just absolutely swimmingly. And they begin to wrestle with this, you see. They wrestle with what God has said and what they see. And they begin to ask the question, does God care about us? Have you ever asked that question? Does God care about me? Maybe maybe God is not as interested in justice as I thought he was. Maybe he doesn't care about right and wrong in the way that I, I thought that he did, even in the way that he said. You see those doubts start creeping in. Then those disbeliefs start Start festering. And and if you're not careful, if you see that happen in your heart and mind, those, those, those doubts turn into disbelief, turn into cynicism. Where you can catch the mocking tone of the people of Israel here in Malachi 2, 17 and 18. Everybody who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. You think to yourself, now do they believe that? They're beginning to wonder. Because the people who are doing wrong just seem to things be going so well for them. It's the same thing that the psalmist writes in Psalm 73 when he says, as I look out of the world and those who do injustice, it's like their life goes great. And then I look at your people and it's like their life is falling apart. And I ask the question, you know, God, do you really care about your people? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them. You should hear something of a mocking tone. He must delight in them. They've gotten so frustrated and so cynical, now they're mocking. Where is this God of justice? Where is he? You can hear it, can't you? It's a dark cynicism. It's a derision of the Lord. I don't see any wrongs being righted. Maybe he doesn't delight in wrongs being righted. It would be easier to make a case that God cares for my enemies more than he cares for me. And the internal dialogue begins to fester. And you see what this is. This is weak faith hearts, struggling with delayed justice, falling into doubts, and disbelief ultimately slipping into cynicism. 
This is the problem of delayed justice. It's the problem of delayed justice. It's the problem that we face in our own hearts and minds. It would be so much... It would be so much cleaner, wouldn't it, that like if you did something wrong, you immediately received justice for it. That'd be really a lot cleaner, wouldn't it? Like, wouldn't that be so much cleaner if the world just worked that way? We like walked around and we had a bad thought and immediately judgment came. That'd be a lot, that'd be very clear. Like that'd be very clear. Oh, God cares about justice. Look at how that works. We have instances of that in the word. You know, we have the story of Achan as the men have been studying in Joshua. Very clear. God cares about justice. Here's about his word. We have Ananias and Sapphira. We have, we have, we have, we have Eli's sons who, who offer strange fire before the Lord. Gone in a moment. We can see the justice of God, but not in many cases do we see that kind of instantaneous judgment or justice of God. And a lot of times it's just delayed and it causes questions in our hearts. And so we say to ourselves, we wish for God to bring justice. Do we? That's what this text is asking. Do we really? You see, there's a problem of delayed justice in this text, but hidden inside of this text is the problem of delivering justice in this text. See, there's a second problem here. You see, when we're caught in this pattern of doubt and disbelief, you know what begins to happen? There are many truths that we remember and there are many truths that we forget in the midst of that doubt and disbelief. We are very selective in the things that we're looking at and considering. What do I mean? When we say, where is the God of justice? You know what we have in mind? Other people's sins. That's what we see very clearly. Isn't that very clear? Isn't that very clear? You have other people's sins. You have other people in mind. Where is this God of justice? I want him to bring justice. What is very clear to you? The sins of other people? That's very, that's very clear. What is not clear to you? Your sin. It's not clear to you. If you're crying, bring the Lord's justice, and you are unqualified by that, you are uncaveated by that, there's no sense of question or pause or fear that arises in your mind when you say that, then you don't know what you're asking. You don't know the extent of what it is that you're, you're saying. Notice in Malachi 3, 5, there are seven sins that are listed here of which God is going to bring swift justice in. He tells us he's going to bear witness. It's the language of a courtroom. And I think Ian Duga does a great job here by noting that these seven sins are not simply seven isolated sins, but they're meant to be representative of a whole. There's seven. There's complete number here. There's a fullness of sin that is showing itself up, and the scope of these sins are extremely broad. Notice in this, this list of sins of sorcerers and adulterers and those who swear falsely, liars, those who oppress the hired worker, those who don't care for the fatherless and widows, those who thrust the sojourner away. Notice there are public sins and notice there are private sins. Notice there are spiritual sins and there are bodily sins. Notice there are sins within our families and there are sins within our businesses. Notice there are sins with people we know, and there are sins with people we don't know. 
The list could go on and on and on. Part of what he's showing us here is the fullness of of sin. He's going to bring swift justice. Yes, these are particular ways in which sin is being evidenced in the life of the people of Israel, but this is also the kinds of sin that is evidenced among all people everywhere. The whole body of sin in Israel really deserves justice, but that's not what Israel's thinking about. There's a very convicting book if you want to feel miserable at some point in the future. You could, you could read. It's, it's called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. I commend it to you. There may be sins that you think that you don't really, you know, deal with. And, and then as you read that book, you're going to deal with a lot more sin than you realize after you're done. And there'll be all kinds of respectable sins. You know, those, your neighbor's sins are just so much worse than yours. Because you have baptized and sanitized certain sins in your life that are the good upstanding Middle Tennessee Christian folk kind of sins, of which deserve the holy wrath of God. Which deserve the holy wrath of God. You see, this cry for justice is not just a cry for justice against others. If we're going to be honest, it's a cry for justice against us. That's what, that's what God is driving home. There's a problem here of delayed justice, but there's a problem with delivering justice for every single person. And, and, and here's the question of the text, verse 2. Who can endure the day of His coming? That's the text. Who can endure? Oh, do you think you can endure the day of His coming? Is that why you're calling on justice for those big bad people across the world? Who can endure? That's the question of the text. And the, the, the resounding answer in the silence of that question. And its answer is no one. No one can endure the day of His coming. Or maybe to qualify, no ordinary human being can. See, that's what this text is pointing us to. You see, we see the problem of delayed justice. We see the problem of delivering justice. But we see the answer, and that is in the justice that brings deliverance. Notice how Malachi 3.1 reads, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now there's a simple way to summarize this this passage, and it, it, it really is in this way. Where is the Lord of justice? I'm right here. I'm right here. I've been here the whole time. And I'm going to show you how it is I'm going to come. I'm coming. You want to know where I am? I'm coming. I'm coming. You're only going to have to turn a few pages in your Bible to get to the book of Matthew. I'm coming. That's what he's saying here in this text. But he does it in a way that's not immediately understandable to us. Let's be quite honest. As we read that text, we're like, hmm, I don't know what that means. 
I don't know what he's trying to say here with his messengers and messengers of peace. And what, what is this? What, what all is he describing here? Well, let's look at it. There's actually, I think, I think we could argue there's three different people who are referenced in this text. And two of those people, if I could put it this way, are the same person. Let, let's look at it together. Look, look at number, number one there. Behold, I send my messenger. Who's speaking here? Well, you actually have to trace it all the way to the end of that verse, and you see, says the Lord of hosts. That's who's speaking. The Lord of hosts is speaking. That's the word Yahweh. And of hosts literally can mean of angels or of armies. Like, you know how when we, at Christmas, we, we speak about, and, and with that angel came the heavenly host, says the KJV, right? That's the language here, right? That the Lord of hosts, the Lord of many angels, and the Lord of the angels and all of the angel armies, right? He is the one who is speaking here. I am going to send my messenger. He's the one who is the first person spoken word through much of the book of Malachi. But notice, secondly, he's sending someone. He's sending my messenger. That's what he says here. And what will this messenger do? Super helpful little phrase. Prepare the way before me. Now, as we were talking about this a little bit last night, the Sheridan House, they got it quickly. I hope you'll get it quickly. Do you remember those words? Does it show up anywhere else in the Scripture? Do you remember prepare the way of the Lord? Nathan Johnson remembers. They prepare the way of the Lord, right? John the Baptist, right? This text is specifically quoted multiple times in the New Testament, including Matthew chapter 11, verse, verse 10. And Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and, and 3. And in fact, it'll allude, we won't go to the deep dive here for sake of time. But in Malachi chapter 4, this is going to come up again. He's going to send a messenger who's going to be of the spirit or maybe the very person of Elijah. That's what we're told in Malachi chapter 4. Now, for those who would have originally read this, they didn't know which. They weren't sure. He's going to send the prophet Elijah. They, you know, they took him at his word. He meant Elijah. But of course, he didn't just mean Elijah. He, he meant of the spirit of Elijah, the one who's going to come who is John the Baptist who will prepare the way. But there's a third person in this text. There's the one who speaks. There's Yahweh. There's the messenger who is John the Baptist, clearly in revelational history. But notice the third person. And this is a little unusual. This is where it gets tricky if it's not tricky already. Notice, the messenger is going to prepare the way for me. <laughs> for me. Now, who is the me? What's well, the Lord of hosts? It's the, it's the one, it's the one speaking. He's going to prepare the, uh, the way for me. So here's what we expect then. The Lord of hosts, the me of this text, is now going to explain to us about his coming. And then notice what he says. But the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He doesn't use the first person. The Lord uses the third person, will come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant. This is another messenger, or is this the same messenger who came earlier? The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. Hmm. All right, so two times in this text he uses the phrase messenger, but he qualifies this one. There's John the Baptist messenger who's going to prepare the way, but there seems to be one who is the Lord of hosts, me, I'm going to come to you, but he is the Lord, the messenger of peace. 
the one who possesses the temple. He's going to come to his temple. Interesting phrase. He's going to come to his temple and you delight in his coming. He's the one you're looking for. Are the people looking for John the Baptist? Not, not really. He's going to come to prepare the way. Could we say of John the Baptist, he owned the temple? Mm, I don't think we could do that. It doesn't seem to make sense to me as you're reading the text. Could we call him the messenger of the covenant? No, I don't think we can. There's some other messenger who's coming whose way has been prepared by John the Baptist. You can, you're picking up what I'm putting down. This is the Lord Jesus Christ that is referenced here. He is the messenger of this covenant. He is the one who owns the temple. He's the one in whom they're looking for, the Messiah. Which is why when you read the Gospels, you know what we see just entirely over and over. Jesus so deeply connected to the temple. Do you know the first time that we actually meet Jesus outside of the Bethlehem story is in Luke chapter 2 in the temple. He's brought to Simeon. And, and it's Anna there who will, will also um, um, prophesy later. And, and Simeon who is waiting, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, sees the Christ child in the temple and he rejoices in the fulfillment that the Messiah has come, the one in whom we've been looking for. Do you know the only time that we see the boy Jesus? Where is he? He's in his temple. He's in his temple. The first time we see him out of Nazareth, where is he? He's in the temple. The only time we see the boy Jesus, where is he? He's in the temple. His, his family has come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They've left. They think he's with them. He's not with them. They turn around. Three days go searching for him. And when they find him, very curiously, he says, Now, why, why again were you looking for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? Did you not know I'd be in the temple? In John's gospel, the very first action we actually see of Jesus among his people in Jerusalem after the wedding of, of, of Cana, where he did the first sign in John chapter 2, is Jesus in the temple. And what does he do when he goes to the temple? He cleanses it. And we're told that zeal for my father's house will consume him. Right. He's come. He is the messenger of the covenant. He's come with zeal for his house. This, this one who has come with the fulfillment of all that God has promised. Do you see what is meant by the messenger of the covenant? What is the covenant? It's the promise. What's the question of our text? Is God really who he promised himself to be? Where is this God of justice? I guess he now just delights in evil as if it was good. I guess that's who he is. Because that's what he's letting go in the world. That must be the kind of God that he is. Where is this God of justice? And he says here, you know, I'm right here. And I'm going to send you one who's going to prepare the way 
And when my messenger comes, the one who is the fulfillment of all that's been prophesied, he's going to remind you of the fact that he is the very delivery of the covenant to you. He, in his person and in all of his work, is the fulfillment of all of which I've promised. You're doubting my promises? Oh, are you going to see the reality of my promises? He comes as the messenger of my covenant. He is the seed that will crush the head of the serpent. He is the promised son from the line of Abraham. He is the keeper of the commandments and the covenant of Moses. He is the king who will sit on the throne that's a part of David's lineage. This one is the messenger of the covenant. All of the delivery of what the covenant had promised is fulfilled in him. The messenger of the covenant brings it. And the proof is in this. Notice what he says in verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. You, O children of Jacob, then, are not consumed. They were questioning whether God had changed. Where is this God of justice? Has He changed His mind about us? Has He changed His mind about morality and and justice? Oh, we wish that he would bring justice on those people over there. They're very clear about that. And then he says at the end of this, you know what? I am going to keep my promises. I don't change. And it's a good thing for you because I keep my promises. You are not consumed. You are not consumed. Now notice, this is the only the second time in the text of Malachi where he uses the phrase, O children of Jacob. Now, I should remind you of something in our series of Malachi. Where did he first reference Jacob? At the very beginning of the book of Malachi. And what he said at the very beginning of the book of Malachi, in fact, if you have your Bibles open, you might look back there at Malachi chapter 1. He talks about his covenant promises. And he says to you, I have loved you, O Israel. How have you loved us? Is Jacob not Esau's brother? Right? Have I not loved you? Jacob I have loved and Esau I've hated. And you say to yourself, as we looked at that, Jacob was a terrible person. He was a a wicked, wily man. And yet God has placed his love upon Upon him, not because he was good, but because God is good, because God is gracious, because God is is faithful. And now he says to them, I I don't know if you've gotten the message yet, but I don't change, O children of Jacob. You, You know, if the people were being a little sarcastic at the beginning, it might be that God is being a little sarcastic here. Have you forgotten who you are? Yeah, you're children of Jacob. You want justice? You sure? Because I am faithful. You are not consumed. You are not consumed. Notice throughout this text, he's been using the language, interestingly, of refining. The whole whole section there in in the middle that it would be, well, a delight to spend a long time in. We won't. But from verses 2 all the way to verse 3, verse 3 and 4, We have this language of refinement. I am a refiner's fire. I am a fuller's soap. I'm bringing out the the, the purity of the silver and the purity of of the gold. (sighs) 
You know, we had our first fire pit on Friday night. In our house, and I, I, you know, there's something beautiful about watching wood burn. I don't know what it is. There's just something about it. And you're sitting there and you're watching wood burn, and I want you to know that the wood is gone. It's gone. It's consumed. That's what fire does to things that aren't worthy. It destroys them. Our God is a consuming fire. It's not that He's not also a consuming fire. The Bible teaches us that. In fact, in Malachi chapter 4, we're going to be told that the wicked will become a stubble regarding the fire of the Lord. But He says to you, O children of Jacob, I'm a refining fire. When the flame comes to you, oh, it'll hurt. When the judgment comes to you, oh, it'll hurt. But what it will burn away will be all of the dross. Will, will be all of the, the, the hay and the, and, and the stubble. But what will come forward will be the gold, the, the silver, the, the riches of what it is that I have done in you. You are not consumed, O children of Jacob, because I uh, do not change. Because I chose long ago to send my son to be consumed on your behalf. Do you know when that covenant was cut with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and God passed through the pieces of the animal who were split on two sides and all this massacre of of animal flesh is, is sitting there and the blood from it. And we're told that God passes through the middle of those broken and rended pieces as a smoking pot and a flaming torch. Making a covenant with His people that if you are not faithful to this covenant, or if I am not faithful to this covenant, it will be I on your behalf that will be destroyed so that you will not be consumed. That's what he said in that wonderful covenant-making ceremony in Genesis 15. I am passing through the pieces. The, the fire of, that consumes, I will receive on your behalf so that when the fire comes to you, you will not be consumed. You will be refined. You will be purified. Do you see that's exactly what's actually happening for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ even today? I don't know what trials you may be going through. I don't know what sufferings you may be going through. But I can tell you this, whatever fire you're passing through, that fire is not meant for your destruction if you're in Christ. It's meant for your purification. P Peter tells us as much at the very uh, the very end of his first letter, in this you rejoice that even now for a little while you have suffered various trials so that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, though perishable, is tested by fire, may result in the praise and the glory and the honor of God when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, that's what's happening. Do you know you were saved by fire, Jesus' experience, 
of the wrath of God on the cross, the judgment fire of a holy God. You were saved by Him being consumed. And because He raised again from the dead, and is today at the right hand of the Father in heaven, you having the Spirit dwell within you, when the fire comes to you, you know what it does? It purifies you. And He's getting you ready for the day in which judgment comes. And any unbelievers who are here today, I want you to know judgment is coming. Fire is coming. And, And in that day, those who receive that fire will either be destroyed or refined. And he tells us in 2 Peter that the reason he doesn't immediately come and bring justice over all the earth, you know why? You know why he doesn't? Because he's patient. He wishes that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's his desire. Have you been wondering why he's delaying justice? That's why. He wants to see people come to know him. He's calling his people into repentance. He desires to see salvation. But a day will come when that judgment will fall and all who are in Christ will be perfectly refined and all who are not will be destroyed. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. Let your life be hidden with Christ in God. And then you will know the sweetness of the love of God in His refining fire. Oh, Father in heaven, we would pray this day that in the various ways that we need to know these truths, they would be made evident to our hearts even now. For the varying ways, Lord, in which we have doubted You, where we've disbelieved, where we've become cynical of You, would You lead us into repentance right now? Would You cause us to see that Your delay is not a lack of care, Your delay is actually a display of care. That You wish that none would perish and that All would come to repentance, that you would wish for your people, even those in this room, through various trials, their faith would be tested and would be turned to gold. Oh, Lord, turn us to gold. Turn us to gold. Father, I pray right now that you would come and pour out your Holy Spirit in such a way that we can receive this truth against what it may look like in the world and help us not to believe what our eyes see or what our minds are prone to think or conclude, but to instead trust in Your always perfect, never failing Word. And to look at the world through the lens of the Word and not the Word through the lens of the world. That we might see that You are slow to anger, merciful and gracious, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, hear this prayer and answer it in Jesus' name. Amen.